You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. Today, I'm talking to uh, Hank Greeley. He's the uh, Dean and Kate Edelman Johnson Professor of Law and Professor by Courtesy of Genetics at Stanford University, and he specializes in ethical, legal, and social issues arising from advances in biosciences. Today, we're going to talk about um, the new science whereby scientists are attempting and seeming to make progress in taking skin cells, um, inducing them or putting them back into a pluripotent state, a stem cell-ish state, and then creating uh, an egg cell or possibly a sperm cell. So I'm sure there's a lot of implications involved with it. And uh, Hank's the author of a book that initially sounds really depressing called The End of Sex and the Future of Human Reproduction. So, uh, but good to talk to you, Hank. Thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, thanks. I, I do have to say what? that in the book, the firmest prediction I make is that in 20 to 40 years, people will still be having sex. They just won't necessarily have sex for all the same reasons. Oh, well, at least it's not going to stop because that would be a very sad day if that happens. But uh, but anyway, that's, that's my opinion. Okay. Well, tell me about um, these initiatives now to create um, egg or possibly uh, sperm cells, but probably egg from uh, skin cells. Why even bother to try to do something like that? Well, I, I think we'll probably be able to create both egg and sperm cells. I'm not actually sure which one is going to be easier. We already can do it and lead to the birth of healthy, live infants, but only if you're a mouse. So it's been done in mice. Um, people are working on doing it in humans. The main reason to do it is to allow people to have genetic babies when they don't have eggs and sperm, or when they don't have eggs and sperm that work right, or when they don't have eggs and sperm that work anymore. So think about um, the hundreds of thousands or millions of couples in the U.S., who want to have babies where one side or the other doesn't have the right gamete, the right egg or sperm. Sometimes it's because of an accident. Um, as a guy, I hate to think about that. Uh, we keep our gonads in a dangerous position uh, where they could get injured. Um, women are, this is one, one, one place where nature is kinder to women and that their gonads are better protected. Um, but it can be a disease. Uh, lots of men, for example, end up infertile because of an early childhood illness that involves a high fever, or it can be a congenital condition. Uh, there are women who have a chromosomal abnormality that keeps them from being fertile. So there are people where 
you, they want to have genetic kids, uh, but they can't. The best they can do is use donor egg or donor sperm. The closest you could get in that case is to use a donation from a sibling. So then the baby would end up half genetically one partner and a quarter the other partner and a quarter the other oh. partner sib. Um, how much you like that may depend on how well you like your sibling. sibling. Right. Yeah. But if you don't make eggs and sperm, you can't have a, quote, child of your own, close quote. I put that in scare quotes because I kind of hate the term. Uh, I do think that children of uh, the parents of children, when the parents have had to use donated eggs or sperm or had to adopt or have done something other than sexual reproduction between the two of them, those are still real parents and those are still their children. But for some people, right, yeah. it's not enough. Some people really want to have a kid who is genetically theirs. And it can be a, a really frustrating life blighting um, experience to try to fix that. IVF can't help those people. They can't help them have a baby who is genetically theirs if they don't have mm -hmm. eggs and sperm to contribute. So I think that's the main reason people will do it, to relieve the... The suffering, the, the genuine, it's psychological suffering, but it's genuine suffering of people who want to have genetic babies and can't. What about um, the instance where, let's say you have a, um, you know, a gay couple? Um, I know that the chromosomes are different for men and women, of course, but do you think that the science may advance to the point where, you know, a gay male couple or a gay female couple, one of them can have their that, you know, they can have two eggs joined or two sperm joined and still create, you know, an embryo and a baby. Yeah, that's a any really good. You see that? That's a really good question. There are some possibilities. Nobody's tried it yet, even with um, even with mice. Somebody did make a baby from two two eggs, but it wasn't actually by turning one of the eggs to a sperm. But there are some plausible ways you can think about making sperm from women's cells and eggs from men's cells. Um, the eggs may be a little trickier because uh, a sperm really isn't very much. There's not much to a sperm. It's just a little guy. It's got half the normal complement of DNA, and it's got a tail. And it's got something called the first mitotic spindle, which helps set up the first cell division, fertilized egg. That's about it. An egg is crammed full of nutrients and proteins and other things that the the early embryo is going to need. Um, but making a sperm from a woman's cell or something that, that works as well as a sperm shouldn't be that hard. Making an egg from a man's cell would be trickier, but it, there's some plausible routes that people are thinking about. Um, and of yeah. course, you know, that, that would be a great boon to gay and lesbian couples or couples who can't have genetic children of their own because although they may both make gametes, they both make the same gametes. This gives them a right. chance to to be genetic parents. Hmm. It also leads to some other weird possibilities though. And let's say that we could make an egg from your skin cells and make a sperm from your skin cells. What would happen if we combine those two? Oh, I guess you could make the joke, you know, now people really could go F themselves, but uh, beyond that, I don't know. I mean, that's uh... a... <laughs> it actually, it, it's kind of an interesting issue. And if, if you were a woman, which I'm guessing from your voice, you're not, uh, you could even carry the resulting pregnancy all by yourself. It wouldn't be your clone. Right. Right. So, think, right, so if you've got, well, it would be, it would be very similar to you. And on genes where you've got two copies of the same version, it would be identical to you. So let's say you've got two copies of the gene for RH positive blood. 
any baby you make this way, and I, in the book I refer to these as unibabies, and you would be a uniparent. Any baby you made this way would have to have RH positive blood because those are the only versions you've got. When one of your yeah. cells splits and becomes an egg, it's got to get an RH positive. When the other one splits and becomes a sperm, it's got to get an RH positive. But if, say, your blood type is type A and you've got one type A gene and one type O gene, then your baby could have two type A genes, two type O genes, or an A and an O. So it would be genetically very similar to you, but not exactly the same. Um, personally, I can't imagine, well, I can't see any good reason for anybody to want to have a unibaby. But in a world with seven, seven and a half billion people, some of them are crazy, and somebody would probably try this. Probably some egomaniacal male. Uh, who knows? I don't know. Um, as, as an American I citizen, I, I certainly know of at least one person who qualifies. That's, that's funny. Um, what about the situation where you know, man and woman want to have children, whether they can or they can't, but you know, maybe this mechanism does it for them? It sounds like they could choose from how their two gametes would combine. You know, right now it's by some un, non-understood mechanism or by chance, you know, that uh, I got half my DNA from my mom, half from my dad. But, you know, what if we're able to tune this to the point where the parents can choose how these two halves are going to combine to make the baby that they want not only be able to have it and not, versus not have it, but and again, design it in a way. Right. And that's really almost the point of my book. Um, the book is really about embryo selection. Making gametes from skin cells, making eggs and sperm from skin cells, going through the process of induced pluripotent stem cells. You take the skin cells, you make them into induced pluripotent stem cells, you then make those into egg and sperm. That's important in my book, mainly for providing a large supply of eggs. Because if you've got a large enough supply of eggs, you can make a lot of embryos. And if you make a lot of embryos, you can then have a lot of choices. Now, it's important to remember that these are choices among a limited range of possibilities. If you and your partner both have type O blood, you're not going to get a type A blood baby because neither one of you has any type A genes to give that baby. Um, hmm. But if you make 100 embryos and then using another technological advance, you do cheap and accurate whole genome sequencing on each of those embryos, you could be given a list of the embryos cleverly named numbers 1 through 100 and told about their likely disease risk and their likely height and their likely hair color, maybe a little bit about their right, personalities yeah. and behavioral characteristics. And you certainly could be told whether they'll be boys or girls. And that's something I think a lot of parents would want, especially for the disease avoidance. The killer app here is avoiding nasty genetic diseases. The good news is they're all pretty rare. The bad news is there's 6,000 of them, at least. And when you multiply rare by 6,000, you get about 1% to 2% of births. is the birth of a child with a serious disease that could have been predicted powerfully using genetic testing. If you can make enough eggs, you can make enough embryos to give parents a broad choice. This process of embryo selection is not new. It's called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Most people haven't heard of it, but it's, it's been used for almost 30 years now. The oldest PGD baby is 29. Um, but it's usually used with only two or three embryos or four or five embryos and looking at only a couple of genes. Well, if you can make... But even, even so, even so, who does the choosing right now? Is it, do the parents even know that this choice goes on or is it the lab tech that's evaluating the uh, two or three embryos or two or three, um, you know, sorry, I don't know what you call them, but 
two or three candidates? Uh, embryos. You call them embryos. Okay. okay. They're usually, I don't know they're usually yeah, they're usually tested at either the day three stage or in the US mainly at the day five stage. The day three stage mm -hmm. is the type of embryo called a morula. The day five stage is the blastocyst, but they're all embryos. Um, okay. Right now, the parents know about it, and the parents are making the choices because the parents are paying for it. Uh, this is an add-on. Uh, okay. This is a bell, bell and whistle you add on to in vitro fertilization, and you pay an extra $5,000 or so for it, uh, and you oh. make arrangements in advance about what's going to be tested for and what isn't. And usually, it's only a small number of things per test. But as we get better, cheaper, faster, more accurate at doing genetic tests on cells from embryos, then you're going to be able to test for more and more things. And ultimately, you're going to be able to test the entire DNA. So what are some of the um, ethical implications of all of this? I mean, there's, there's a lot. You know, my head is, my mind is going with all the possible ones. But what are the yeah. ones that uh, you've run into or that, you know, the loudest voices in this? Well, so let, let me back up a little bit, separated in two sets of things. One is the ethical implications of just making eggs and sperm from skin cells. Um, the, the crypto Orwellian acronym for that in the business is IVG, vitro gametogenesis. If you can do that, you can get some interesting possibilities, like the Unibaby, for example. Or one reason that a lot of people can't have genetic children isn't because they didn't make eggs or sperm, but that they used to make eggs, but now they don't have any useful eggs left. You should be able to use this to avoid the biological alarm clock, biological time clock on women. And so 80-year-old women should be able to become genetic mothers. Some people find that really an offensive idea. Uh, given that we've always allowed 80-year-old men to become genetic fathers, it's hard for me to see what the big deal is about it. Um, but it does open, this, this timing thing opens up some other possibilities. If you could make viable eggs and sperm from an 80-year-old woman, from anybody's right. skin cells, you could make them from an eight-year-old girl or an eight-year-old boy. You can mm. make them from somebody before mm. puberty. You could make them from an aborted fetus. You could make oh. them from somebody who's been dead for years, but whose cells were frozen. I know that sounds really weird, but think about Dolly the sheep. Dolly was actually cloned from cells from a sheep that had been killed three years earlier, but some of her cells oh. had been turned into a cell line and frozen. So wow. once you freeze those cells, they last indefinitely. Um, there's some pretty weird aspects about that in terms of generational skipping and changing the time clock for reproduction. Uh, but it gets even weirder, I think. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, sit down. Are you drinking a cup of coffee? I have coffee with me. Yeah, why? Okay. So uh, be careful with that coffee cup because although in theory you could steal somebody's eggs and sperm right now, it's really hard to do, especially hard to steal eggs. And most of the emphasis here has been on eggs because eggs are a lot harder to get than sperm. Um, not easy to steal sperm either, though. If, on the other hand, you can make eggs and sperm from cells, it's easy to steal oh. cells. You have left some living cells on that coffee cup or on the computer when you typed on the keyboard. Most of the right. cells you left there were dead. And the skin cells or the cells from the inner lining of the cheek. But some of them will be living cells. Uh, if I get a, if you go to the bathroom, a lot of human living cells in that. Uh, it is not that hard to steal cells from people, which means not that hard to make somebody a parent without his or her knowledge or consent. 
sort of planted the evidence at the, the scene of a crime and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And the the, the O.J. Simpson story is um, idea is one part of it, although you don't need to make eggs and sperm for that. You could, but uh, the making eggs and sperm part, making people parents without their knowledge or consent, is troubling. Um, I, there are not a lot of things in the book where I say we definitely, absolutely have to pass a law banning this, but that's one of them. I don't think people should, at least except in unusual circumstances, um, become be allowed to become parents without their knowledge or consent. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. There's a lot and, of crazy and, implications. Hmm. Yep, yep. So those are some of the implications of just being able to make eggs and sperm from skin cells. Yeah. If there are 10 genes you care about and each one has two variations, you right. could end up needing a thousand different embryos in order to get one that has all 10 that you like. On average, you would need a thousand to get one that has each of the ten characteristics you most like. If you care about more than ten, the numbers go up really, really fast. So we can't use this method to get you even the perfect baby from you and a particular mate, let alone the perfect baby overall who might have uh, traits that come from genes that neither you nor your mate have. So it's not designer babies; right. it's selected babies. Um, the bigger issue with that is. We can't make super babies anyway because we don't know the genes for super babies. There probably aren't genes right. for super babies. We can make maybe slightly better babies. But if we start allowing selection for this, there will be lots of concerns. To me, the most important ethical concern is safety. Now, we don't often think about safety as an ethical concern, but it's really unethical to do unreasonably unsafe things to people. Right. If this process turned out, if the process of making babies from skin-derived stem cells, skin-derived skin cells and uh, eggs and sperm, turned out to uh, cause a disabled baby one time in 20, 5% of the time, that's a terrible result. Normally, the birth defect rate is about 1% to 2% in human reproduction and normal human reproduction. Any process that's significantly higher than that is a bad thing, and we shouldn't do it. Now, I do think in the U.S. this would have to go through the FDA, and the FDA would have a, I trust, I hope, serious safety process that would have to be met. So I don't think this would be, be a lot of desperation. I mean, think about yeah, the there desperation will be. that couples have. So they would say, I don't care. You know, if it's one in three, I'm still going to want to do it. So it yep. would be a problem, right? Yep. And they, they might not be able to get it done in the U.S., although they might. But I bet they could get it done in Tijuana or in Rio de Janeiro, or in Bucharest, or someplace else. Um, we see reproductive tourism going on already, and desperate people will try to do things before they're, before they're thought to be safe. But I think there are real safety issues. To me, that's the biggest ethical problem, but there are a bunch of others. Uh, one set of ethical problems is about equality. Uh, there are a variety of, of versions of this. One is economic. Um, what if only the rich get access to this? So only the rich can have selected babies. The good news is it's not going to lead to a caste system with superhumans and subhumans. It's not going to be the Eloy and the Morlocks from the time machine or well, actually, Alpha let me bring up a point. Let me, bring, let me bring up one point. So some traits, I mean, just my perception, but I would think they'd be universally good. So let's say we we're able to determine what makes someone above average intelligence. I mean, is there anyone that wouldn't want that? And if this happens on a large scale, that over time would tend to shift the population towards people of higher intelligence, let's say. 
So the people that are here would be at a detriment. And then anyone that doesn't do this process would be at a detriment potentially. So those kinds of things I, I could see would put pressure on people to do this that didn't even want to do it. Yeah, I think there, there could be, if we don't have a squad about how to give people better intelligence genetics, we could give them better intelligence by feeding them better and giving them better education and a more stable home life as early in early childhood. We know about hundreds, literally hundreds of genes that strongly affect intelligence. And that if the gene is messed up, you'll be a very, very low intelligence. We know next to nothing about genetic variations that increase intelligence. And the little bit we know is very uncertain. Now, that's likely to change. But, but, but yeah, right but let's now, say we, did, uh, we don't. Let's say there was another characteristic, strength or lung capacity or other ones that seemingly are universally positive that everyone, everyone would want or almost everybody would want. And again, it shifts the population in a direction where people that weren't thinking about designing or trying to design or select now feel like, well, if we don't do it, our child's going to be at a disadvantage for whatever reason. Yeah. So there are two different things going on there. One is, do we know enough genetically to um, select for those kinds of universally positive traits? And the answer right now is almost certainly not. Um, and genes do a lot of things. So it might make you stronger, but maybe making you stronger will cause heart disease earlier by making your heart too strong and overwork. And that, that's that's a, a random speculation, but hard to know how these all are going to play out. But the second thing is, I'm not, I'm not as confident as you are that there are a lot of traits that are universally viewed as good other than avoiding disease. I do think Parents will feel, many parents will feel compelled to do this in order to give their children a healthier life, freer from disease. I think that's something that is likely to be a big driver for this. Um, does everybody want to be tall? A lot of people want to be tall. Not everybody wants to be tall. Does everybody want to be strong? Uh, maybe every young boy, every guy wants to be strong. Does every woman necessarily want to be strong? Um, I, I'm not even sure every guy wants to be strong. I'm not, and, and even on intelligence, uh, I think there is a, I, I think particularly people who live in intellectual atmospheres tend to think that intelligence is universally important, universally crucial, universally desired. I think the absence of very low intelligence is almost universally desired, uh, but higher than average intelligence. Not clear to me how universally that's uh, viewed as something that is crucial. I think most parents want to have kids who are kind of like them. And there are some, uh, oh. except in Silicon Valley and a variety of other places around universities, there are a bunch of negative stereotypes about eggheads, about intellectual, pointy-headed intellectuals, and other negative stereotypes around intelligence. So I'm pushing well, back a little bit. Um, it's not clear to me how many traits there are that, that would be universally desired, other than avoiding... Good, that, that, helps, that helps modify my question. So all right, they're not universally desired. Fine, there's nothing like that. But if large segments of the population prize certain things, like let's say there's a big segment of the population that prizes strength, and they have the ability yeah. to make, to you know, select kids that have that, and then another prizes intelligence, and another prizes uh, whatever. I mean, that would also lead to segmentation of the population. You know, not just diversity, but it would lead to specific segmentation. The more things we learn how to throw the levers on, it could fragment the population into, I mean, at some point, you know, that's really crazy different yeah. species, but 
at least um, very different types of people. I, I think that's fair if there turns out to be a substantial genetic basis for those things that comes without really negative side effects. That's an open right. empirical question. We don't know the answer to that. If so, it could turn out that way. It already goes on through training, environment, early education. You know, Tiger Woods was playing golf at three in part because his dad loved to golf. Um, I, you know, some parents start reading books to their kids at a really early age because they really prize literacy and reading and so on. So we already do it. The question would be how much more does genetics add? And there's a, a deeper aspect to that too. We, we tend to think of genetic things as kind of inevitable, but they usually aren't. They're predispositions that are affected by time, chance, and environment. It's kind of like steroids and muscle building. Injecting steroids doesn't give you better muscle. Injecting steroids and working out gives you better muscle. You can inject steroids and be a couch potato and you'll still have bad muscles. If you've got genes for being smarter, but you never get an education, you may not be much smarter, or you may be smarter, but only in some limited ways. So genes aren't, sometimes genes are really, really powerful. If you're born with two copies of the gene variant that causes Tay-Sachs disease, you'll be dead by the time you're four. Most of the time, genes are influences that work in conjunction with the environment. And I think that's true for the so-called enhancing genes, as well as for most of the disease genes. Okay. But, but circling back, I mean, the underlying point that, that parents will have different wishes that could lead to some segmentation in what their children do is true, especially if particularly to the extent to which we have we found good genetic, powerful genetic bases for success in those areas. Um, there are... And it's happening. I think it's happening already. Like you said, you know, parents are... Some parents steer their kids. Well, they do it intentionally and unintentionally, but it's happening already, just maybe not on a genetic level. But yeah, the, with that the, added the, on, who knows? The tutoring for the preschool admission tests in Manhattan is apparently quite a business. Oh, you know, they're, they're, they're parents who are insanely competitive for their kids in all sorts of ways. And the, the two-year-olds taking violin lessons. Um, there's, there, there are a lot of intense parents out there. But yeah. I think you need to to think about two different aspects of that. One is a fairness aspect, and one is, a co is I think, sort of a coercion aspect. The fairness aspect is what if these things are expensive and only rich people can afford them, which is probably true of things like SAT tutors for college admission, even leaving aside getting bribing a coach to say that your kid is a great rower when he's never been in a boat, the most right. recent scandal. But um, right. if things are only available to rich people and not to poor people, that's clearly an equality problem. I think with respect to gene selection, at least in developed countries, I think it's actually going to be available to everybody, not just because countries will think that's fair or more, more equitable, but because it'll save the health system's money. I mean, if it were to cost $10,000 to make a baby this way, which I think is a reasonable guess, 100 babies is a million dollars. A million dollars is a fair amount of money. If you can prevent the birth of one child with a serious genetic disease out of 100, how much money do you save? Five or six million bucks over the child's lifetime discounted to net present value, let alone a lot of human suffering. So I think there'll be strong financial reasons to make this free. However, that's true in the U.S. and in Germany and in Japan and in probably by then China. Um, it's not going to be true in Paraguay or in Laos or in 
the Central African Republic. So there will be international disparities of access based on economics. In some ways, though, I think the more interesting question is the one you were getting at, the sense of coercion and, and implicit coercion. I mean, I think it's one thing for the government to say, you must use this process and you can only transfer embryos that project to be in the top half of military ability or the top half of intelligence or the top half of love for the dear leader. There won't be genes for love for the dear leader, but the dear leader probably will think there are. Um, that's, that's sort of straight, straight out coercion. That's easy to condemn. But what if it's something you don't really want to do, but you feel you have no choice because otherwise your kid will be at a competitive disadvantage. You don't really want to put your kid in a fancy preschool, but otherwise you worry the kid won't get into the fancy elementary school, et cetera. So I think that's a a real and an interesting issue. Um, It's not quite the same, but I resisted for a long time moving to a smartphone. I didn't really want to be tied to a smartphone, but the, the world shifted in ways that it basically became almost impossible not to have a smartphone. When everybody else is doing something, sometimes it's really hard to hold out against it. And that might be true in this sort of situation. I don't, yeah, I don't really know what to say about it. I, I don't know what to do about it. Um, there are people who hate so, to drive. Right. They can live in Manhattan, but if they live in California, they pretty much need to learn how to drive, whether they want to or not. Yeah. Well, so what, what do you see as the timeline going forward of the big issues we're going to have to wrestle with? You know, not, not all of them, but a few of them. What's what's coming soon, meaning the right. next five, ten years? So in the book, which was published three years ago, I put the my big prediction was set 20 to 40 years in the future, was that at that point in developed countries, more than half of babies would be conceived using this process, which I call wow. easy PGD. That's a pretty bold prediction. And one piece of advice I have for people who plan to write books with bold predictions, a piece of advice I didn't think about, but turned out to be true in my case, uh, set the end point beyond your life expectancy. So in 40 years from 19, uh, from 2016, I would be 104, which means almost certainly I won't be around to see if I'm wrong. Um, you may live to rue the day. You never know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I'll make it to 104. Uh, but uh, I still think that that prediction is about right. I think we're about 20 to 40 years from a lot of people using this to select embryos. I think we're closer than that to people beginning to use um, stem cell-derived eggs and sperm. I would be surprised if we're not in some human trials within a decade, um, 15 years at the outside. So the mouse work has moved along quite well. Uh, One of the groups doing the mouse work the Saito lab in Kyoto, uh, just last October, published a paper where they'd gotten human eggs from from skin-derived stem cells to two stages before a mature egg. Um, eggs go through lots and lots of procedural steps. Sperm go through fewer, but they also go through procedural steps. They're not at the endpoint yet, but they, they're getting closer. And I think the, the politics behind infertility and behind trying to help people who can't have genetic children of their own have them are really pretty benign. Um, Probably the Vatican City won't like it, but in most of the world, the idea of helping people who want to have their own genetic children, have their own genetic children, isn't going to raise a lot of political hackles. That's not going to be terribly controversial. There is potentially a huge market out there of desperate would-be parents who would be willing to pay through the nose in order to have this. I think 
all those plus the scientific progress makes me think that we should be well on the path within a decade. Um, maybe not yet FDA approved or equivalent approved, but that should come with, within 20 years from now, probably less than that. Um, and then in the, the next step of it, adding that to genetic testing through pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, I think will gradually grow once it becomes, once the process of making eggs from skin cells becomes FDA approved and widely accepted, we'll see continuing growth in what I call EMGD. So ultimately, I still think, well, I'm now three years in, so it's 17 to 37 years from now, we'll see lots and lots of people making their babies this way. Not everybody, not even in the U.S. or in other rich countries, but lots yeah. of people. There's one last thing I thought about, and there was actually a movie kind of about this, but it's along the Unibaby line. Yeah. What if um, you're able to, you know, use your own cells and culture, you know, an embryo and grow it to the point where it develops organs, et cetera, and then uh, you own that and use it to replace your own organs if they give out or that kind of thing. So it's like a horrible yeah. thing to think. You know, in the movie, the person was was born and they grew up to be the age of the person. But, you know, what if you, even if you stopped it at a state where the, you know, the embryo is just about to be born, if you could do such a thing and then you harvested its organs for your purposes, I mean, that's like, it's horrible, but what's your thought there? Yep, that's horrible. Um, it's probably not illegal in the United States in the first six months of pregnancy. Uh, once you get past the first six months of pregnancy, the current law allows bans on abortion and the last, well, after viability, which is about 24 weeks or so of pregnancy. I don't know how often you'd have an organ from before 24 weeks of development that would be useful for transplant purposes, but not certainly not inconceivable you could have. Um, what you'd really want to do probably is not so much the unibaby. Uh, what you'd want to do is another form of fancy science fiction reproduction that we can probably do, and that's make a clone. Remember, the unibaby won't be exactly you, but a clone would right. be exactly you in terms of DNA. Um, there was a lot of hysteria about cloned humans after Dolly was born. We kind of immediately jumped from one cloned sheep to armies of cloned warrior slaves. Lots of countries banned it. And lots, of, uh, lots of people said they were going to try to do it, and nobody did. And it turned out that it was really, really hard to even clone a human embryo, let alone turn it into a baby. But people kind of forgot about it. Dolly came out in 97. Dolly's birth was announced in 97. It wasn't until 2013 that anybody successfully actually cloned a human embryo. A group up in Oregon led by a guy named Shukrat Talapov did it. Other labs have replicated it. We now know how to make cloned human embryos. But interestingly, nobody's talking about actually making babies that way. For your organ replacement scenario, that's the nightmare you want. You want to have a clone. You want to make your clone and use that clone as an organ donor. Once that clone is born, we got another name for that clone. We call it a person. And so you can't yeah. just slice and dice it legally. And even in the last, once the fetus is viable, it's not a person, but states are allowed constitutionally to regulate it under existing law. And who knows with the current Supreme Court how long the existing law will stay in force. Um, I think, I hope, that the way we'll get around that is to grow the organs outside of a human. So if you need a new liver, we'll just grow you a liver from your skin cells. We right. may do it yeah, completely in a, 
you know, we may do it completely in a lab, and there are people walking around with um, bladders that have been grown from stem cells. They're not perfect, and bladders are pretty dumb organs, but that's a good proof of principle. And then, then there are folks, I've worked on this a little bit, this sounds really weird, but who are trying to grow human organs in pigs or in sheep. Hmm. So especially if it's a pig, I mean, we already, if you're willing to turn a pig into bacon, you should be willing yeah. to turn a pig yeah. into a liver that'll save a human life. Yeah. So my hope is that will avoid the temptation to grow humans to be organ donors. Uh, growing humans to be organ donors, there are not a lot of things that, that I say are clearly unethical and wrong, but that's one of them. Um, sort of. One of them, if the organ is not, if the organ is not an easily replaceable organ. So one thing that PGD has been used for, the Brits, the Brit tabloids came up with the name for it, Savior Sibs. Let's say you've got a kid with leukemia who has a recurrence of leukemia after chemotherapy and needs a bone marrow transplant, but there's no bone marrow donor available, nobody with the right immune system match. Well, why not try to make another baby with the same immune system match that the first child had? Uh, if you're using the same parents, your odds are better. They're not 100%, but they're better. And then use bone marrow from that second baby to treat the first child. And in fact, right. it's even better than that. You don't have to use bone marrow. You can use umbilical cord blood. Uh, and that's actually been done. This is called, the process is called Savior Sibs. Doing that, if you're only doing it to get the, the cord blood and you immediately give the baby up for adoption, that seems like a bad thing. But if you want another kid and you get as an extra bonus, a kid who helps treat his or her older sibling, it's not such a bad thing. Okay. Huh. Lots of ethical issues, but uh, you're able to give them uh, more elegant statements than I can. But uh, I'm glad to talk to you about this and I, and I appreciate your time. What's oh, the best it, way it, for... It's such cool stuff. It's and it's important too. I mean, it's not only really interesting, but it, I think it is going to change the way humans reproduce, and it will have. I don't think we're not going to turn into a, a race of superhumans, and we're not going to have a speciation event anytime soon because of this. But it will make some permanent changes in what humans are like. Yeah, true. So, what's the best way for folks to get your book, and then also maybe to engage with? with you know, your thoughts on their blogs or other ways to engage with you? Uh, what, what do you recommend? Um, so for the book, it's available at bookstores everywhere as long as they're called Amazon or, or the equivalent. But uh, the, the online bookstores have plenty of copies. It's in paperback, hardback, and Kindle or Kindle equivalent, uh, published by Harvard University Press. Uh, I, I'm not sure there's a great way to engage particularly with me. I work on a lot of different things the area of ethical and legal issues and bias sciences. But there is a lot of talk about all of these issues around human reproduction and genetics. So I recommend, you know, follow the newspapers, follow this, the magazines and the journals, do Google searches looking at assisted reproduction or looking at uh, PGD or looking at gene editing. The whole terrible, reckless, criminally reckless experiment that Hu Jiangqi did in China leading to the birth of two crispr babies. Right. That's the kind of thing I, I hope people will read about, follow, pay attention to, um, because it's important. Definitely. Well, Hank, thanks for coming. And uh, you know, I appreciate all your wisdom. My pleasure. Always fun to talk. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. FutureTech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.